Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a story uh, toward the end of Mark chapter 9, but I want to walk us through uh, the first part of the text. And so it begins with this. Jesus goes up on a mountain and is transfigured. That's a weird word. It's not something we say a lot, but the way that my translation talks about it says that Jesus' clothes were so white that no launderer could have done it, uh, which is a weird phrase, and I don't know what to think about it, but his clothes were like, dazzlingly white, whiter than the, the toothpaste commercials. They are so, so white that they couldn't make sense of it. Jesus is transfigured. He's standing between Moses and Elijah, two figures from the Old Testament that are so significant to what the Jewish people believed. So at a bare minimum, with Jesus standing between Moses and Elijah, you could look at that scene and say, wow, this guy's equal to those guys. But as the story goes on, God actually speaks. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. In reality, Jesus is the culmination of the law and the prophets. It is in Jesus that power and authority exist. Jesus, at the center, is the source of power and authority. At that moment, in this scene, are three of Jesus' closest friends. It is his inner circle. It is Peter and James and John. These three guys see Jesus in this transfigured state which is weird. It's beyond what they could imagine. It's beyond what they understood. But these three guys are really significant. In Mark chapter 3, when it's talking about how Jesus gathered the 12 around him and started calling them his apostles, these three guys are significant for a reason that I didn't pick up on until this week. These three guys get nicknames from Jesus as a, as a way to recognize how close they are to Jesus. Simon is no longer Simon. He is Peter. James and John become the sons of thunder, which is the best nickname in the Bible. These three guys are important. They see the transfiguration. It's a really fascinating moment. So outside of these three apostles, outside of these, this inner circle, are the nine other apostles. Jesus and the three are coming down the mountain in Mark chapter 9. And they see Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, the other James, which I'm pretty sure just went by other James, uh, which is, I mean, might be a nickname, I don't know. Thaddeus, the other Simon, and Judas. All of these guys in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls them his apostles, are given the ability, they're given the gift, they are commissioned to drive out demons. Now, that's a weird thing for us. We, we have a lot, hard time comprehending that. Happens again in Mark chapter 6. The same 12 guys are standing around and Jesus says, I give you the authority to go cast out demons. So here, in our passage in Mark chapter 9, the nine have this authority. Jesus and the three closest to him are coming down the mountain. When they come across this scene, there's this crowd and the crowd's gathered around the, the nine and the nine are having this argument with the scribes and Jesus asks, what is going on? And a dad in, Math, in Mark chapter 9, verse 17, says this. He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, 
but they couldn't. That's not the verse. <laughs> but anyway, the nine, these, this dad brought his son to these nine. They were supposed to drive out the demon. Jesus had commissioned them twice to drive it out, and they weren't able to do it. So fast forward a little bit. Fast forward the scene. Jesus drives out the demon, and the nine, along with the three, along with Jesus, go on to Capernaum. In Capernaum, Jesus asked them what they had been arguing about as they had been walking down the road. None of them respond. These 12 were in a bit of an argument, and they were embarrassed to tell Jesus what they'd been arguing about. The text says they had been arguing about who was the greatest. So based on what we've seen in this passage so far, with the transfiguration and the nine who had failed to cast out the demon... Who do you think is arguing about who the greatest is here? Do you think it's Thaddeus? How many of you remember that Thaddeus was one of the 12? <laughs> do you think he's arguing that, G that he is the greatest? Or, or Thomas, who gets attributed to his name forever doubting Thomas? Do you think it's him? I don't think so. I don't think it's the nine at all. I think Peter and James and John are sitting there, they're walking down the road, and they're having this conversation. You know, Peter, I know Jesus said that he's going to build his church on your confession, but we're the sons of thunder. <laughs> Matthew chapter 20, there's a scene where their mom shows up. This is the most mom scene ever, and I don't know what to do with that, but it is. They show up, the mom shows up, and she's talking to Jesus. She says, Jesus, I recognize you're going to be king. I recognize you're bringing this kingdom. And when you have this kingdom, when you are king, you're going to need somebody to sit at your right, and you're going to need somebody to sit at my, your left. My boys would be great for that. <laughs> yep, that's these guys. I think it's these three guys who are having this conversation about who's the greatest. I think it was Peter, James, and John. So back in chapter 9, our passage for this morning, Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John talks to Jesus and he says this. He says, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. Read this statement about a hundred times this week, and, and I can't help but feel that this statement is so loaded and just wonderfully revealing about the heart of John. I want you to notice a few things. First off, notice that John is the one speaking. John is one of the three of the inner circle. He's part of that inner circle. He was there when Jesus was transfigured. He, Jesus gave him a nickname. John is special. He's significant. And if you asked him, I would imagine he'd tell you he's important. Because he is. You see it. Second, recognize that when he's talking about this person who's driving out demons, the person's name is someone. It's someone. It's somebody out there was doing this. It's not one of the nine, because the nine have failed to do that, so we know it's not them. It's not one of the three, because he would have named Peter or John, or Peter or James, excuse me. This is somebody outside of us. 
who's driving out demons. And his reason for telling the unnamed person to stop is because the person was not following us. Following us. John's saying, this guy, whoever he is, this someone needs to recognize the chain of command. And he isn't in it. That someone should be following the 12 who are following Jesus. He should be following us. As the apostles are seen doing many times in the Gospel of Mark, John is acting more like a bouncer for Jesus than a disciple of Jesus. The reality is John saw this situation as us against them. The apostles were given authority. They were commissioned by Jesus. And this other guy wasn't authorized at all. He didn't have authority. He was not commissioned. And that question of authority, the question of authority has made its way into churches ever since. In the history of our movement, there was a time when the major questions being asked were which one of us has the authority to preach? Which one of us has the authority to preside over this table that we participate in every week? Which one of us has the authority to baptize? Which one of us has the authority to make decisions for the church? All of those things have been debated. They've been argued because the question of authority is so important. And listen, there might be a right answer to those questions. You might have your opinions. But many times, and most times, what happens is that we begin separating from each other and creating an us-against-them mentality because we view those issues as more important than the person who has authority. John saw this situation in the gospel as us against them. John said, we are special. We are apostles. We know Jesus personally. Well, this guy, this someone casting out demons, he's ordinary. He's not one of us. We don't even know his name. This story messed with me a little bit this week, but it reminded me of my friend Jeremy. So he doesn't cast out demons, so he has that, I guess. But he went to a Christmas party. We went to a Christmas party that we were both going to be at one year, and he dressed up in a box as God's gift to women. (laughs) Yep. And I asked him this week, how did that work out for you? And he said, really well. So I I don't even know what that means, but good for you. Even though that was a joke, I think many of us still see ourselves as special. We see ourselves as significant. You know, maybe we're not God's gift to women, but we think, I'm smarter than those people. Like, yeah, I know he said that, but I'm smarter than those people, or I'm better than those people. Maybe we don't say that, but we think it. Or I'm prettier than those people. I mean, maybe not, but still. Most importantly, I am more important than those people. We often believe that we are special and other people are not, and John absolutely seems to be doing that in this passage. In the church I grew up in, we talked about church a lot. It was one of the things about being part of church is that you talk about church. And the way that we would talk about church is that there was this Greek word. There's a Greek word for church, which is ekklesia. 
which you've probably heard before, but that word we took to mean called out. We don't belong in the crowd, we are called out. We are not part of the world, we are called out of the world. But when we, when we would talk about this, we began to see the church as against the world. We flee from the world, we don't love and serve the world. We decide what constitutes the church, we talk about those things, we decide what constitutes the world, and we draw those lines and we dare not cross them because, I mean, we're the church. What would happen is that instead of God's kingdom expanding, it would just continually shrink. We fail to see God working outside of us. The worst way that we would do this is the way that we would talk about other churches. We would say that we are the church that belongs to Christ. And I believe that. I believe that we belong to Christ. But we would draw lines and say, but the Baptists, they can never belong to Christ because, well, they're Baptists and they don't. Or the Nazarenes in town. Oh, man, those people don't belong to Jesus. They don't have anything to do with him. Or the Catholics or the Lutherans, or whatever other denomination that we would be offended by at the time. I don't say all that to bash the church that I grew up in. I don't say that because they're bad people. But I I will say that because it matters the way that the world perceives us. How does the world perceive other churches when they're working against each other? Do they believe that we have a God who is supreme and is over all of us, or do they believe that we're the special ones? We're the exclusive ones. What is the world? And and by the world, I mean those people that we believe are in desperate need of God's salvation. What do they understand about God when churches are preaching against each other? There's this feeling of superiority that comes, this feeling of God chose us, he didn't choose you find that within churches sometimes. Like, I'm a preacher. You're the lowly members. Listen to me. I'm an elder. You're nobody. Stop talking. I've been here 40 years. You're new and you don't get a voice. These things can happen. When we see the world, when we see things through the perspective of us against them, And in our passage today, in Mark chapter 9, John absolutely saw the world, us against them. Why does he do that? So I was considering this passage this week. It occurred to me that the reason John sees the situation the way he does, the reason John acts the way he does is because he assumes that he has gained the power and authority to do so. I don't believe that Mark put this story immediately following the section on which apostle is the greatest for no reason. John was in the inner circle. He saw the transfiguration. He had the nickname. He had not failed to cast out demons like the nine. John was pursuing power and authority. And power and authority make us view ourselves against others. I want to say a couple things about the pursuit of power and authority. And I say this from a place of conviction, not a place of integrity. First thing is this, I believe that the pursuit of power and authority for disciples is toxic. 
I believe the pursuit of power and authority is toxic for disciples of Jesus. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the way that we sometimes consolidate power. And by consolidating power, I mean that we believe that there is this much power, there is this given amount of power, and we have to take it away from others in order for ours to increase. There's only so much, and it belongs to me. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking on the same hand, we have this God who sends his son to give power. We have this God who sends his spirit to empower us to do the work of God. That's a very different model. It's not pursuing power, it's receiving power. Pursuing power leads us to control others. We believe that we know best, you know nothing. Following Jesus leads us to serve others. We're not serving those we control. You know, I have a lot of theories about preaching. I have a lot of things I believe, but but this is one of them. Each time before I preach, I reflect and I study for quite a while. More times than not, what happens is that the Holy Spirit convicts me of my own brokenness and my flaws. I believe that before the text, before I bring the text to you to confront you and your lies, I must be confronted first. And so church, this week I recognize that I have spent a lot of my church life focused on gaining power and authority. I need to repent of that. Because as we see in John here, that is not what it is to follow Jesus. The pursuit of power and authority has been toxic for my own faith, and I believe it is toxic for disciples of Jesus. This is not John at his finest. This is John at his most fallen. So pursuing power and authority is toxic for disciples. But I think it's toxic for disciples for the second reason, that Jesus did not seek power. He laid it down. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, did not consider that equality something to be exploited. Here in our passage today, in Mark chapter 9, just three verses before where we're at, In verse 35, Jesus says, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. If Jesus did not pursue power, if in fact Jesus taught us not to pursue power and authority, why would we do this? We need to follow him. John saw this situation as us against them because John was pursuing that power and authority. So here, in Mark chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus responds, Don't stop him, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Jesus tells him, don't stop him, because there is no one who can speak evil after doing this. It's important to recognize the shift in pronouns. For you English nerds, that's free. Uh, John is speaking about us in, chapter, in verse 38. Jesus is speaking about himself. 
And the reason for this is because in whose name are these miracles being performed? Nobody's saying in the name of John, <laughs> cast out this demon. This guy's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. In verse 38, John is telling this guy, you need to know your role. Stop doing this. And I believe here in verse 39, Jesus is telling John, you need to know your role and stop doing this. Jesus is not pursuing power, but he has it. John heard God tell him and Peter and James to listen to Jesus. John saw Jesus cast out that demon that the nine had failed to cast out. John was pursuing power and authority that does not belong to him. John had himself in view. Jesus was focused on the mission. Which is why in verse 40, Jesus concludes, For whoever is not against us is for us. I believe Jesus is saying to John, John, you need to recognize you are on the same team as this guy. John, you need to recognize that you are accomplishing the same goals as this guy. Don't lose sight of the mission. It's easy to focus on ourselves. Don't lose sight of the mission. When we view the world as us against them, we fail to see the mission of Jesus, which we participate in, and so do others. It is bigger than us. We have a God who is against no one. When Jesus in verse 35 says that we need to be last and servant, he says last and servant of all. As disciples of Jesus, we need to stop looking at the world as us against them and begin seeing the ways that Jesus is at work outside of us. Instead of seeing competition, we should seek to see collaboration. Instead of opposition, we need to see some harmony. And instead of, getting, of being against others, we can be for them. We have a God who is bigger than we are. Let me share two quick stories where I found Jesus at work this week. These are quick stories. If you know me at all, you know I love sports, but I am in no way a LeBron James apologist. Not a fan, don't like the guy. I don't. But this week, he partnered with Akron Public Schools to open a third and fourth grade school for kids in poverty that's aimed at helping their whole families. He's offering a healing experience for an impoverished community. I listen to the story, I look at the story, I consider what's going on, and I have to ask the question, is Jesus at work in that? Is Jesus at work in that? I came across a group of people that are fostering refugee children who are awaiting the arrival of their parents. These foster parents speak different languages than the children they are fostering, and they have very different customs. One of their statements is that they believe that love translates into all languages and that Jesus calls them to love children. Is God at work in that? Jesus says that whoever is not against us is for us. So the question for us becomes, can we be for them? Listen, I know that there will be people who are against us. Jesus has some things to say about that as well. 
That's a different story altogether. There are many times where we find ourselves against people who are not actually against us. Who Jesus might say are for us. Can we begin to see the world the way Jesus does? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father God, you are good. You're loving. God, you see things in ways that we don't. God, we we pray that you continue to shape us into the image of your son. God, for the times that we see people against us who are not actually against us, God, we pray for your forgiveness. For the times that we seek power and authority that ultimately belong solely to you, God, may we repent of that. God, can you just work in us? Help us to see the ways that you are active in the world around us, the ways that you are helping the community and helping the world and shaping it into the kingdom that you are bringing. God, we await your arrival. God, we just pray that we may be agents at work in that transformation, not agents at work against it. Be with us, love us, shape us, forgive us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.